health and everything in it is made possible by listeners like us. My name is Noelle Glazier. I live in Deer Park, Washington. I am 14 years old and listen to the World Podcast with my family. I hope you enjoy today's program. Good morning. For the first time in the history of the poll, now in this country, religious Americans are a minority. That's ahead today on Culture Friday. We'll talk with Trevin Wax about that. Plus, a new clean comedy special we can all relate to. I got friends that they take a shower with their mask on and they sleep with the mask on because they have a hamster and the hamster probably has it and they're trying to live alone. And Myrna has a review of an album and book combo called Faithful. It's Friday, April 16th. This is The World and Everything in It from listener-supported World Radio. I'm Myrna Brown. And I'm Nick Iker. Time now for news. Here's Kent Covington. Secretary of State Tony Blinken made an unannounced visit to Afghanistan on Thursday, doing his best to sell Afghan leaders on President Biden's plans to pull all American troops out of the country this summer. Even when our troops come home, our partnership with Afghanistan will continue. Our security partnership will endure. Biden announced this week that the 2,500 U.S. soldiers remaining in the country would be coming home by the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. Afghan President Ashraf Ghani told Blinken, quote, we respect the decision and are adjusting our priorities. NATO immediately followed Biden's lead on Wednesday, saying its roughly 7,000 non-American forces in Afghanistan would also be departing within the next few months. Secretary Blinken explained on Thursday, We never intended to have a permanent military presence here. The threat from al-Qaeda in Afghanistan is significantly degraded. But critics say the ground gained against al-Qaeda and other terror groups in Afghanistan will quickly be lost as soon as U.S. forces depart. GOP Senator Marco Rubio. I wish that the situation in Afghanistan were different, right? I wish that there was an Afghan government that was strong and a Taliban that was headed towards defeat. That said, that's not the trends this has taken. The Some critics have cited as a cautionary tale the American military drawdown in Iraq prior to the rise of ISIS. The United States is expelling 10 Russian diplomats while imposing sanctions on dozens of companies and people. At a House Intelligence Committee hearing on Thursday, Chairman Adam Schiff said Moscow is guilty of many infractions. Election interference, attempted murder, the illegal invasion and occupation of Crimea, reported bounties, continuing cyber hacks, that list is not exhaustive. But the actions taken to respond and more importantly name and shame Russia and those and sanction those responsible is absolutely critical. Sanctions against six Russian companies that support the country's cyber attacks represent the first measures against the Kremlin for the hack commonly known as the Solar Winds breach. The U.S. on Thursday also explicitly linked the hack to a Russian intelligence agency called the SVR. The U.S. also announced sanctions on 32 individuals and entities accused of trying to interfere in last year's presidential election. A group of Democratic lawmakers has launched a legislative effort to expand the Supreme Court. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey announced the effort alongside several other Democrats in front of the high court on Thursday. We are here today because the United States Supreme Court is broken. It is out of balance uh, and it needs to be fixed. Joining Congressman Markey was House Judiciary Chairman Gerald Nadler and Judiciary members Mondaire Jones and Hank Johnson. 
The lawmakers argued that they're not trying to pack, but rather unpack the court. They said it was Republicans who packed the court by denying President Obama's high court pick, Merrick Garland, and holding the seat open for President Trump to fill. They say to bring the court back into balance, President Biden should be allowed to pick four new justices. The Judiciary Act of 2021 is just a two-page bill. It would expand the court to 13 seats. But the Republican-ranking member on the Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, pushed back. The left controls big media. They control big tech. They control big sports. They control Hollywood. They control higher education. They control the Congress. They control the White House. And now, because they don't have control of the Supreme Court, they're going to add four people to the court. They control everything. This is a radical takeover of our country. President Biden recently announced a 36-member commission that will examine the question of expanding the high court. The number of Americans applying for unemployment benefits tumbled last week to the lowest level since the pandemic began. World's Anna Johansson-Brown has more. The Labor Department reported 576,000 jobless claims last week. That was a 25 percent drop from the week before. It was the latest sign that the economy is bouncing back. In March, employers added more than 900,000 jobs, the most since August. That dropped the unemployment rate to 6%, less than half the pandemic peak of 14.8%. Retail sales also jumped in March. Sales at stores, car dealers, restaurants, and bars jumped by nearly 10%, the biggest gain in nearly a year. Reporting for World, I'm Anna Johansson-Brown. The defense rested its case in Minneapolis Thursday at the trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd, and it rested without putting Chauvin on the stand. Before the jury was brought into the courtroom, Judge Peter Cahill addressed Chauvin directly. Is this your decision not to testify? It is, Your Honor. All right. Do you have any questions about your right to remain silent or to testify on your own behalf? Not at this time, I don't. The prosecution briefly recalled a lung and critical care expert to counter the testimony of a defense witness. And with that, both sides finished presenting their cases. The judge then addressed the jury. Members of the jury, the evidence is now complete for this case. Uh, Next step for you is to listen to closing arguments and then retire for deliberations. That will happen on Monday. Meantime, another former Minnesota police officer made her first appearance in court. Kim Potter is facing a second-degree manslaughter charge in the death of a young black man. Potter fatally shot 20-year-old Dante Wright during a traffic stop on Sunday in suburban Minneapolis. The incident has sparked days of unrest. I'm Kent Covington, and straight ahead, America loses its religion, plus a new musical project that reimagines familiar Bible stories. This is The World and Everything in It. April 16th, 2021. Glad to have you along for today's edition of The World and Everything in It. Good morning. I'm Myrna Brown. And I'm Nick Eicher. Well, here is one of these slow motion trend stories. We've all seen it coming. We all expected it. And yet, when it arrives, we're still a little shocked and saddened in a way. 
It's the Gallup Houses of Worship Survey of the United States, 80 years of surveys about the religious life of Americans. And the shocked, not shocked finding is that for the first time in the history of the survey, religious Americans are now in the minority. American membership in a house of worship sits at 47 percent, which is to say that less than half of all Americans said they belong to a church, synagogue or mosque. The survey released several weeks ago, but we We have not reported it here still. Again, it's been a long time coming, but its effects aren't going away anytime soon. Well, it's Culture Friday, and joining us now is Trevin Wax. He's general editor for the Gospel Project at Lifeway Christian Resources. He's also a visiting professor at Wheaton College. Trevin, good morning. Good morning. Well, so we can slice and dice these data points any way you like, Trevin. There's a, a generational component. Two-thirds of elderly Americans belong to a church, according to the survey. But as you get younger down in the demographic, the drop-offs become very noteworthy. Uh, baby boomers down to 58%, Gen X, 50%, millennials and Gen Z, 36%. Uh, there's also a decay of the culture component. Our elite institutions have been secularizing for a long time, and it just seems logical that this would be the result. But just because this news doesn't seem all that newsy doesn't mean it's not significant. Why does this story have your attention, Trevin? Well, I I think what initially struck me about this survey was uh, something you might might call it the snowball effect, in that... um, if you look at the data, it really is in the last 20 years that this decline has become much faster and more precipitous when it comes to who is identifying as a church member, who says that they are a member of a of a mosque, a synagogue, or a, or a church. Um, and so for me, all of the generational components were about what you'd expect. Uh, I mean, we've, we've seen a secularizing trend. But I think the the quickness of the drop-off in the last 20 years, going from where we were 20 years ago to where we are now, being a minority of Americans saying that they are a member of a religious organization, that in itself is a pretty stunning uh, uh, collapse, so to speak. Now, that doesn't mean that a lot of people still aren't going to church. Um, In fact, church attendance is measured differently than church membership. Mm -hmm. But it certainly gives us a, a view that commitment to a religious organization, commitment to religious institutions, uh, commitment to a religious faith is on the wane rather quickly in our society. I wanted to ask you about the COVID disruption, Trevin. I look at economic numbers all the time, and and one thing we've seen is that the economic recovery was what they call a V-shaped recovery. That is to say a, a violent plunge down the upper left of the V dropping diagonally down, then the bounce back that's just as abrupt. Uh, might we see something of the same thing with religious attendance when let's say the mask mandates come to an end. Is that part of it at all? Um, I don't think that that has much to do with Gallup's survey of religious membership, because there are a lot of people that have not been attending church regularly in the last year who would still say that they are a member of a congregation of some sort. 
um, Gallup was 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 looking at membership rates. Um, attendance rates, like I said, is a different survey. So, of course, attendance rates are going to be way, way down this last year because of COVID. And I do think you're likely to see something of a V-shape that once um, the mask mandates are over and once we are really on the other side of the pandemic, I do think that you'll see a, a recovery when it comes to church attendance. Um, but I do think a lot of congregations are going to feel unstable for a while. So just because there might be a bounce back of church attendance doesn't mean that they will be a, going back to your church. I know of lots of cases across the country, pastors I've spoken with, who have lost members uh, during this COVID season, um, not because uh, uh, people have drifted away from the faith entirely, but because they've, they've, you know, they visited other churches online and they didn't, I guess they didn't feel super connected to the congregation that they'd been a part of. And so they had been on the periphery already and sort of migrated to another service where they might like to worship better. They might like the sermon more. I think there's going to be a, a sense of destabilization in uh, churches for the next year or so, even if attendance does begin to creep back up. I wonder if there's a, a positive way to look at this, Trevin, maybe in this sense. Couldn't it be said that in a hostile culture, church membership has some cost attached to it, not just benefits. So naturally, it's a little weird. It's a little countercultural even to go to church, let alone believe what's taught there. And maybe the health of a smaller church community is, uh, is better, more healthy. Let me quote the Baylor historian Thomas Kidd. He writes at the Gospel Coalition, quoting here, if nominal utilitarian civil religious Christianity is mostly what's fading away with the cratering of American church membership, then I say good riddance. <laughs> Do you say the same thing, Trevin? So I I appreciate Thomas Kidd for a lot of things, and there is a sense in which I know what he's saying, and I agree with that, in the sense of if, if we're talking about a nominal Christianity that is devoid of the gospel's power to change lives, that because it's just sort of a ritualistic uh, cultural thing, then yes, we should want the true biblical gospel to to be blazing to uh, to we we should want that kind of nominal cultural Christianity that doesn't really have intrinsic power to it to fall away. So in that sense, yes, I agree with what he's saying there with that sentiment. Um, there is another side to that statement though, and it's that um, the the plausibility structures of our society, or what is it that. Uh, there are enough people in society do a certain thing that makes it seem like a reasonable thing to do or a, a, a plausible way of life. When those are affected, um, be, when, when you see stats like this, those plausibility structures are affected. So when you only have a minority now of Americans who claim membership at a church, it doesn't mean necessarily that they're no longer spiritual in some sense or that they even uh, no longer have a religious uh, practice of some sort, but they have no institutional ties. What that does is it makes those who do have institutional ties feel much more out of the mainstream than they might have before. So what happens is culturally, there's a massive shift here where the, the, the challenge and the task becomes all the more difficult for Christians who are seeking to fulfill the Great Commission uh, you know, make disciples, baptize people, teach them everything that Jesus taught us to to do, and and to belong to His family. That belonging part, uh, where there is obligation when it comes to religion, 
is something that seems more and more foreign to people when you see numbers like this. So that is not a good thing. That is something that makes the, the Christian task harder in our day rather than easier. And I think that that is, is something that we have to reckon with, even while we can appreciate the sentiment that, yes, we want uh, true Christianity blazing on fire for God Christianity to be the norm rather than a sort of shell of cultural Christianity that has often been the case. Well, Trevin, Nick mentioned earlier the generational component, and I want to drill down just a bit more on that. The numbers show a significant decline in millennials and Gen Z. And let me review that real quick. Only 36% belong to a church. That's a 20 plus percentage point drop from the baby boomers who traditionally, you know, have been more theologically orthodox. So out of a desire to be relevant to these young people, do you think pastors are feeling the pressure to create a reward, you know, some type of reward system to pander to the younger generations? What do you think? Well, I think there's all sorts of cross pressures that are happening for for pastors um, in this cultural moment, and one of them certainly is generational. I don't, I, I hardly ever um, speak to a pastor when we talk about challenges facing the church that they don't bring up younger generations and how to engage them and to involve them. Um, one of the challenges that you have with a lot of younger people, and I think other surveys would bear this out, is that a lot of younger people simply don't have many affiliations or associations at all. So it's not just that they're not members of a church, but they're really not, there's a lot of younger people that aren't members of anything. You see the decline of civic institutions. I mean, it'd be hard, you'd be hard pressed to find, you know, um, a lot of um, rotary clubs and Kiwanis uh, and, you know, those kinds of civic organizations that are just teeming with young people. Mm-hmm. The the idea of um, uh, obligation and reward in for many of, of these um, uh, associations are, it's just, it's just much less for younger people. Um, what what we are finding in statistics and surveys, not from Gallup, but from other organizations about churches that are effective in reaching and engaging young people, uh, what you find is they don't water down the biblical message. They take Jesus's message seriously. Um, you find that they are involving young people in leadership earlier rather than just sort of catering to young people. They are are reaching out to young people to have them lead. To, uh, to have them serve in the congregation to where they it, it's clear that they they own this that this is not just church for them but that they are for the church as well um, and so the, you know there's a Kara uh, Powell's book growing young talks a, a lot about um, different aspects of churches that are, are are effective at reaching younger people and some of the the things that we find are not what you'd think. It's not the size of the church, the the flashy uh, worship service necessarily. It's it, all sorts of different things than you might expect are effective in engaging young people and keeping them involved in the church. Trevin Wax, he is general editor for the Gospel Project at Lifeway Christian Resources. He's also a visiting professor at Wheaton College. Thanks, Trevin. Great to be with you. Thank you both. Additional support comes from Wilberforce Weekend, a world-class event from the Colson Center that explores your God-given calling and His restorative work in the world, May 21st through 23rd. More at wilberforceweekend.org. From the Masters University in Southern California, standing firm on Christ and Scripture for 94 years. New programs and scholarships available. 
More at masters.edu. And from Too Busy to Flush, a podcast of real-life husband-wife conversations on kids, family, faith, and whatever else comes to mind. TooBusyToFlush.com Well, I'm not sure it gets much worse than this. I will provide the translation for you. The kleine Babyschlange im Salat. This is a German-speaking woman living in Australia. She's narrating a video that she's shooting with her phone. Eine kleine Babyschlange. That means a little baby snake uh-huh. in Salat. Oh. That means in what? The, yeah, it means in the salad or in the lettuce. Uh. And so this baby schlange pokes its head out of the lettuce, and what you hear next is, he's coming out, I'd better replace the lid. Schnell, quickly. I'm out of here. Bye. Wow, jetzt kommt sie raus. Ich mach mal schnell lieber den Deckel wieder drauf. Oh, well, okay. So the snake comes packaged in lettuce from an Aldi supermarket in Sydney, Australia. As it turns out, this little baby schlange isn't cute at all. It is poisonous. The refriger- Can this get any worse? Mm, yeah. Oh the refrigerated supermarket supply chain likely lulled the cold-blooded juvenile into a stupor because he made a trip of more than 500 miles from packing plant to point of purchase. Needless to say, the customer got in touch with a snake expert to help out at home. Aldi, for its part, is looking into the incident, and I imagine that they are. What the Wildlife Agency's reptile coordinator says here, I'm not sure makes things all that much better. It's the first snake, he says, that he's ever had in sealed, packed produce. And then he adds, we get frogs in them all the time. Mm, I'm done. It's the world and everything in it. <laughs> Today is Friday, April 16th. Thank you for turning to World Radio and not turning from World Radio to help start your day. Good morning. I'm Nick Eicher. And Myrna, are you all right after the baby schlange? Baby steps. <laughs> just just baby steps. Baby steps. <laughs> and I'm Myrna Brown. Coming next on The World and Everything in It, something to make you laugh this weekend. Nick, who couldn't use that? Well, I could sure use it. You know, if you've listened to this program for any length of time, you have to know that Megan Basham has a special affection for clean comedians who compete in the mainstream arena. This week, she recommends a brand new special by one of her favorites and mine. This guy is great. The Tennessee Kid, also known as Nate Bargatze. Singing in the kitchen. Running through the yard. One of the most refreshing things about Nate Bargatze's brand of comedy is that he's not just family friendly. He also avoids taking aim at any tribe. His latest set, The Greatest Average American, just debuted on Netflix. And as you might expect, it's heavily focused on the pandemic and events of 2020. Yeah. I mean, let me tell you, 2020 has been my favorite year. They said there's UFOs. 
and no one cares. That's There's not a politicized joke in the bunch, and that's on purpose. In a recent interview, Bargazzi told The Daily Beast, politics has overwhelmed every facet of entertainment. So I like being an outlet you can trust you're not going to get lectured. And there certainly are no lectures, just laughs when he talks about the various COVID camps. You want to be in the middle, I think. And I've got friends, i got friends that they take a shower with their mask on and they sleep with the mask on because they have a hamster and the hamster probably has it and they're trying to live alone. It's just them and the hamster. And I also have friends that I don't think have even heard about COVID. I, it looks like someone told them to try to go get it. That's how they're living. And of course, there are all the ways the coronavirus has changed our public behavior. I can tell you one thing that's gone forever is uh, coughing in public. That's, that's, uh, that's a wrap. I mean, you drink water wrong at a restaurant, just go walk in traffic. Most of us have seen movies and TV as a means of escape from the lockdown reality of the last year. But Bargazzi offers a strong argument that leaning into our shared experience is cathartic. We may not all have tried to perform stand-up over Zoom, but we have all probably experienced some form of video conference fail. Now, that said, some bits don't feel as sharp or developed as in his past specials, but then, like so many other entertainment professionals, comedians haven't had the opportunity to hone new work in front of live audiences the way they usually do. So a few of the scenes show here. But there are still plenty of laugh-out-loud moments, particularly when he turns to the subjects of marriage and family. At the end of the school day, someone from the school called my cell phone. They have my wife's cell phone, they have my cell phone. They called my cell phone, and the te- she said, hey, do you know what bus number your daughter's supposed to be on? And I said, I'm her dad. I said, are you crazy? Like, I was like, this is how you thought you would get this information? Was the call the dad? True to form, there's no profanity, no sexual material. And the one joke that glancingly references gay marriage does so only to highlight innate gender differences in traditional marriage. He then quickly turns back to the ways men and women tend to fulfill separate roles. I would rather you ask a lady that doesn't know her. I think she could get to the bottom of it quicker than I can. I had to go get her. I go, all right, I'll come get her. What's, tell me the name of this school and I'll come get her. What, where is she going? think that avoiding racy or snarky jokes equals bland or corny. Far from it. Bargazzi just avoids falling back on the cheapest tricks in the playbook, confusing crudeness or derision with comedy. I hope the Bashams aren't the only ones cracking up at the familiarity of a fight he and his wife had about the meaning of the phrase, one fell swoop. And I just go, that's not what one fell swoop means. (laughs) And instead of possibly just being wrong... She goes, I I know what one fell swoop means. I go, yeah, it doesn't sound like you do, all right? (laughs) And we have the same last name. I can't have you out there in a one fell swoop conversation. (laughs) What do you think two birds, one stone mean? Let's just go through them all. I don't know if you know any of these. We know the proverb about sharing a house with a contentious woman, but Bargazzi illustrates the pitfalls of being a contentious man. And so I was like laid there and I'm just thinking about it. And you think about it a lot because you're like, all right, because you learned longer you get married, sometimes it's like, just let stuff go. You know, who cares? And the next morning I get up and I kind of still want to talk about it because we, we didn't talk all night, you know? So I went into her, I was like, look, 
uh, I gotta tell you, I mean, it's just not what it means, you know? And that, that got it going real good. Uh, Whether it's dealing with the stress of life under COVID or marital strife, we laugh at what we recognize. And that process of taking ourselves less seriously is what creates the best medicine. Bargatze's new pandemic special is just what the doctor ordered. I'm Megan Basham. Today is Friday, April 16th. Good morning. This is The World and Everything in It from listener-supported World Radio. This morning, we are keeping the faith with six-time Grammy Award winner Amy Grant and singer-songwriter Ellie Holcomb. It isn't often. And if we're honest, it's downright rare that a Christian book, album, and live stream event is ever promoted on primetime secular media. Then, too, it's not every day a group of award-winning Christian artists and best-selling authors gather to collaborate and create in an old converted church turned studio outside of Nashville, Tennessee. That's exactly what 27 artistic heavy hitters did during the winter of 2019, just a few months before the pandemic. But there was another group of women represented during those long weekends, And their stories are the inspiration behind The Faithful Project, a book, album, and live stream event inspired by the women of the Bible. I will tell it like it is. I was hanging by a thread, pushed out to the furthest edge, and I wasn't proud of it. That song, God Above, God Below, Rahab's Lullaby, features singer-songwriter Sandra McCracken. Like a snug glove, the soft, simple chords and strong harmonic chorus are a perfect fit for the book's first chapter, written by author Amanda Bible Williams. Williams tells the story of Rahab, the Canaanite woman who risked her life to save the spies. He is God Forever labeled a prostitute, Williams writes, Rahab's story is about a different kind of profession. Not her line of work, but her profession of faith. Like other projects before it, Faithful includes the often told stories of familiar women in the Bible, including Ruth, Esther, and Mary Magdalene. But to its credit, The Faithful Project also tells the story of a lesser-known woman in the Bible, Jehoshaphat. Found in 2 Kings, Jehoshaphat risked her life to save the life of her one-year-old nephew, one of Israel's future kings. In her essay, 
writer Kelly Nehem makes a compelling correlation between this ancient woman who poured herself out daily for the life of her nephew to the high calling we have today as wives and mothers. That thumping chorus from songwriter Jenny Owens underscores the significance of Jehoshaphat's story. Because of Jehoshaphat's hidden sacrifice, peace was restored to an entire nation. There are 12 songs on the Faithful Go and Speak album and 11 chapters in the corresponding Faithful book. Now, it's worth noting, a few of the essays are noticeably stronger than the songs they're connected to. For instance, it's hard to compete with the witty Lisa Harper, who writes, I aspire to be like Ruth and Esther, but Sarah, not so much. The idea of buying pampers and depends at the same time just isn't appealing. The Faithful Project is also realistic in its reflection of life's bright and dark moments. In Chapter 11, Jenny Owens writes about Hannah and her years of barrenness. Owens, who is visually impaired, also reveals the rejection, humiliation, and isolation she felt from her sighted classmates. Ruth Cho Simons writes about Leah and the spurning she felt from Jacob. Simons, an Asian-American, also recalls growing up as an immigrant and being riddled with rejection for her almond-shaped eyes, the foreign words she spoke, and the fried rice they ate. But the two authors don't leave us with just sad stories about being dismissed and misunderstood, because at some point in our lives, we've all spent time in that space. As co-writer of the praise anthem, I Will Bring Praise, Simons reminds us, God sometimes chooses to write his redemption story through the most unlikely women and through circumstances that don't always make sense. Our response? Praise. It takes a team to put this program together and ensure that it is faithfully delivered to you each morning, and thanks are in order to our excellent team. Megan Basham, Anna Johansson-Brown, Kent Covington, Katie Galtney, Kim Henderson, Onise Ohikeri, Bonnie Pritchett, Mary Reichert, Jenny Lynn Schmidt, Sarah Schweinsberg, Julie Spencer, Cal Thomas, Steve West, Whitney Williams, and Emily Whitten. Johnny Franklin and Carl Peets are our audio engineers. Lee Jones is managing editor. Paul Butler is executive producer. And Marvin Olasky is editor-in-chief. And thanks to you. Because of your support, you're helping make it possible to bring Christian journalism to the marketplace of ideas. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Have a wonderful weekend of worship with your brothers and sisters.